Hey, thanks for listening to the Journey Podcast. We're glad you're here. Journey exists to engage people in the process of knowing Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast engages you, encourages you, and brings you closer to Him. While in prison, Joseph developed a reputation for accurately interpreting dreams. Pharaoh's cupbearer, who was also in prison with Joseph, was restored to his position just as Joseph had interpreted. But the cupbearer soon forgot about Joseph. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came seven cows, attractive and plump. Seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows and ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, this time of seven thin ears of grain swallowing up seven plump and good ears of grain that were growing on one stalk. And Pharaoh awoke again and sent for all of his magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men, and he told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret interpret them for Pharaoh. It was then that his cupbearer remembered Joseph. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh told Joseph all that he had dreamed. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers of the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through famine." This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Joseph became the most powerful man in Egypt, aside from Pharaoh himself. And the famine spread all over the land after seven years, as Joseph had said. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us that will, that will live there and not die. So, jo- so, then of Joseph's ten, so ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, for he feared that he might harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among those who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more." But Joseph said to them, It is as you said, is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. And Joseph tested his brothers on two separate trips to buy grain, hiding gold and silver in the men's sacks. Upon the second test, Joseph cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for two years, and there are yet five years left in which there will be nothing to plow or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for those, who, those many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Thanks a lot for reading our story today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Caleb Meeks. I'm the online and groups pastor here at Journey, and I'm glad to be with you today, especially under these circumstances we talked about earlier in the service. But today we're actually finishing a series that we've been in for the last seven weeks called In the Beginning. And what we've done all throughout this series, we've taken a look at some of the, the big characters in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis, and we're just working our way through the Old Testament. We started, obviously, with Adam and Eve and, and really creation. And in the beginning, the very first verse in the Bible and we talked through creation, and then we talked about Noah. We, talked, we spent a couple weeks on Abraham and the promises of God. And then we talked about Jacob and Esau and how Jacob was ultimately Joseph's father. And then last week, we talked about the first half of Joseph's story. And then today, we're going to talk about the second half of Joseph's story. And last week, we left off with Joseph in prison, basically in a dungeon, Joseph had gone to his brothers and told them an interpretation of a dream that he had, that basically his brothers were going to bow down to him. And, and they were like, there's no way that's going to happen. They get mad at him. They throw him in a ditch. And then he ends up being sold into slavery. And now he's basically in a dungeon, in prison. And this is where we pick up in his story. So he's in, this, he's in prison. The reason he's in prison is because he was serving in the house of Potiphar. And, and Potiphar's wife kept pursuing Joseph. And even though he resisted, they arrest him for being with Potiphar's wife. So he's basically accused of attempting something that he did not do. He's basically wrongfully accused, and now he is in prison. You know, honestly, over the last couple days as I've been going over this message, there's one word that's kind of popped up over and over again. I want this to be kind of on the forefront of our minds throughout today's message, and the word is this, providence. God's providence in Joseph's life, God's providence in your life and in my life as well, and what that basically means is God working in our lives how God is orchestrating things, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, but God is at work in our lives. He's providing, he's protecting. That's God's providence in our life. Now see how this plays out in the life of Joseph. So Joseph is in the dungeon, he is in prison, but he's not just surviving. In fact, Joseph is beginning to thrive. Last week we talked about how our circumstances are gonna put us right where God wants us to be, and that's exactly what's happening in Joseph's life right here. It says this in Genesis chapter 39, verse 21 through 23. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and he showed him his steadfast love. And this is where God's providence, God working in his life starts to be seen. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So God is working. He's giving Joseph favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. God was working in this situation. We see in this first act of really the second part of Joseph's story that there's no amount of injustice, there's no amount of mistreatment that can separate Joseph from God's favor. 
God is working in his life. God was with Joseph through it all, and he continues to bless Joseph through it all. Thus, this word providence becomes a theme. We go on to read in the story that here's Joseph in, in the dungeon in prison, and he's become the right-hand person in the prison. Among his cellmates, the people in jail, there's two of Pharaoh's workers, two people that work for Pharaoh. They've done something to be put in prison, and all of a sudden, they start having these strange dreams. And Joseph says, hey, I can interpret it for you. Let me tell you what it says. He goes on and he interprets these dreams, and here's what he does. He tells one of the officials who's in prison, hey, you're going to be set free and you're going to live a good life. He tells the other person, hey, uh, by the way, you're going to be executed. And I'm sure at this point, the two of them start arguing back and forth, like, hey, are you sure that you have the right dreams for the right person? Like, am I the one set free or am I the one being executed? Like, did you not switch these up? Like, are you losing sleep? What's going on here? But he says, hey, one of you is going to be set free. One of you is going to be killed. And he tells the one who's going to be set free, hey, when you get out of here, remember me. Don't forget about me. Please remember me. When you, when, if this dream comes true, when you get out of here, you're set free. Remember who I am. Remember me. And sure enough, the dreams, they came true. One man was set free and one man was put to death. The one who was set free ended up being the chief cupbearer. He was Pharaoh's cupbearer. He was the person who poured him wine. He was a very important person. He had a lot of trust in him because he was the one who made sure that Pharaoh wasn't going to get poisoned. He had a lot of trust in this person, so he becomes almost a right-hand person for Pharaoh. He has a lot of influence in Pharaoh's life. But after his release, the Bible says this. In Genesis chapter 40, verse 23, remember, Joseph's like, hey, remember me. But it says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. In fact, he forgot him. He forgot who Joseph was. And you guys remember Joseph is in prison and you, and you got to think, man, everything was right. I told you about the dream. I told you what was going to happen. And I told you, please just don't forget about me down here in this dungeon. But the cupbearer forgets all about Joseph. And we see this theme all throughout the Old Testament of honestly, God testing our patience sometimes. We see it with Adam and Eve, we see it with Noah, we see it with Abraham who had to wait 20, 40, 100 years for promises to come true. And it's no different in the story of Joseph as he's sitting in this prison wondering, okay, what's going to happen next? Seems like the cupbearer has forgotten all about me. And that's the case for two whole years. For two years, Joseph is forgotten about. But two full years pass and all of a sudden Pharaoh started having some really strange dreams. We just heard about him. He started having dreams about really fat cows and plump. And then all of a sudden, these really skinny cows, and they're standing next to each other. He's like, what in the world does this even mean? He starts asking people who are around him, hey, can anybody interpret these dreams? He goes to his magicians. He goes to his wise men to explain their meaning. Can you please just tell me, what in the world do these cows mean? But none of them could do it. All of a sudden, God's providence comes into play. He starts working in the situation, and the cupbearer remembers, oh, yeah, I had a dream a couple years ago, and there's this guy down in the pit, down in the dungeon, down in prison, and he told me exactly what was going to happen. You know what? It came true. His name was Joseph. Let me go and get him. So the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He said to Pharaoh, there's a guy down in the dungeon. He's pretty good at explaining these things. It's happened before. We see this in Genesis 41, verse 14. It says, then Pharaoh sent and he called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. 
And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, basically making himself as presentable as possible to Pharaoh because he's been down in prison, Joseph was able to listen to Pharaoh's dreams, and he was able to give him this interpretation. He said, seven years of abundance is coming to the land of Egypt. Seven years of great things, great harvest, more than you can ever imagine. Seven years of abundance. However, that's followed by seven years of famine. And he said, you know what? I suggest that you find a wise man, a wise person to put in charge of the land, to collect the food and then store it away so that Egypt won't be ruined by famine. He's basically like, hey, hey, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Like, maybe you should think of a guy who you can trust, who can just manage everything for you. And I'll make sure that for seven years we manage things really, really well. And then after the next seven years of famine, we have enough food for everybody and we can make it through this. And all of a sudden, Joseph was promoted out of the dungeon. Pharaoh took a look at Joseph and said, you know what? You're the one. You're the man. You're going to be second in command. Since God has made this known to you, I put you in charge of my palace and the whole land of Egypt. Only with respect to my throne will I be greater than you. Basically saying, hey, you're in charge of everything possible. The only thing different is I'm the one sitting on the throne, but you're in charge of the whole land. I need you to help manage everything. I need you to do what these people need to survive. So, we see at the age of 30 that God's provision is working in Joseph's life. He was a former slave, a former prisoner, and now all of a sudden he's the second most powerful man in the most powerful country in the world. And for the next seven years, he did his job really well. For the next seven years, he made sure they stored enough food to help all of Egypt prepare for the next seven years of famine after that. And sure enough, after the first seven years, famine struck the land. And it wasn't just Egypt, it was all the surrounding land as well. And this is where Joseph's family comes into play. Joseph's family, they are knee deep in this famine. So you go back to Canaan where Joseph's family is, and the famine is at full throttle. They're running out of food, they don't know what they're going to do. But Joseph's father, Jacob, he heard that there was plenty of food in Egypt and that he had an idea of, let me go send some of my sons there to buy some grain. So he sent his, his half-brothers, all 10 of them, to go and buy this food. In Genesis 42, 6 through 7, it says this. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of all the land. And Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him. If you remember from last week, this is the dream that he told his brothers. Hey, by the way, you're going to bow down before me. They get really mad at him. They throw him in the ditch. They sell him into slavery. It's all coming true. They bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. You see, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him, but it's all part of his master plan. Joseph ends up accusing them of being spies and said, you know what? One of you must stay here as a hostage while the rest of you go home and bring back your youngest brother. He's like, hey, you didn't bring the whole family. I want your youngest brother here too. So one of you stay in here. The rest of you go home and make sure you bring back your youngest brother. So they reluctantly agreed to this. They took the grain they purchased and they left. When the brothers got back to Canaan, they told their father, Jacob, what had happened and they, that they must return with Benjamin. Jacob said, forget it. There's no way I'm letting my youngest son go. This was his baby. This is the one he cared about. I said, no, 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 I'm not gonna let it happen. Eventually, the grain they had purchased was all used up. They started to starve. He got desperate. So Jacob was forced to agree to allow Benjamin to take the next journey to Egypt. 
And this is where God's providence starts playing again in the family's story. When Joseph learned that his brothers had returned, he invited them to have lunch with him. He prepared a table for him. He started asking, like, hey, what's your family like? Is your dad still alive? And all of a sudden, the brothers start noticing things are a little weird. They notice that all of them are sitting from oldest to youngest at the table. Joseph has started orchestrating this to happen. After the brothers, they had had a meal. They purchased some grain they needed. Joseph told his steward, hey, all the money they just spent, if it's $1,000, I want you to put it all back in their bags. Give them all their money back. But the youngest one, put my silver cup in his bag. So they take all their stuff. They start walking out of the city. But before they got out of the city, Joseph sent his soldiers after them. Their bags are inspected. And of course, Joseph's silver cup was discovered. And the brothers, they're all arrested. They plead their innocence before Joseph. But he said, only the one who had the cup in his possession must remain here as my slave. The rest of you, you can go home. Joseph knew that it was Benjamin, his younger brother. But all of a sudden, the plot starts turning. Humanity starts kicking in. His older brother, Judah, the one who was the orchestrator of sending his brother into slavery, starts to feel something in his heart. He says, you know what? This isn't right. He broke down before him and he said, please don't take my youngest brother. Take me instead. And at this point, Joseph could no longer control himself. He said to his brothers, I am your brother. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? He reveals the secret to them. But of course, all the brothers are terrified. They're assuming that Joseph's going to have some payback for them selling him in to slavery. But lo and behold, his father, Jacob, all of, his, all of his sons are stuck here. He's wondering what's going on. So his father, Jacob, makes the journey to Egypt. Joseph and his brothers, they're reconciled together. He shows them mercy in his life. The family survives the famine. 17 years Jacob lived in Egypt before he passed away. But with Jacob gone, Joseph continued to show kindness and mercy to his brothers, and they continued to live in Egypt. And that's the story of Joseph. But what is it about Joseph? What qualities in his life allowed him to thrive? About everything going on in his life, amongst everything, amongst being in a, in a pit, in a dungeon, in jail, amongst being a servant, what are the qualities of Joseph's life that allowed him to truly thrive? For the next few moments, I want us to focus on that question. I want us to look at three different lessons we can learn from the life of Joseph. We can apply to our lives to allow us to truly thrive. Because here's what we've learned all throughout the series is that the God who was in the beginning is still the God of today, and he's going to be the God forever. So the same lessons that Joseph learned are the same lessons that we can learn today. So here's the first lesson that we can take from the life of Joseph. Is that in everything, we must learn to be a servant. In everything, learn to be a servant. See, Joseph was willing to be a servant even when life didn't serve him well. Even when he was dealt a bad hand, he had a bad plate served to him, he was still willing to serve. Why did Potiphar elevate him to such a high position in the house? Well, because he recognized that Joseph was more than just an intelligent person, more than just a talented administrator. He saw in Joseph a quality of integrity, humility, and most importantly, a willingness to serve. Why did the jailer allow Joseph to take a place of higher position? What did he see in him? Well, he saw a man of integrity, a man of humility, a man who was willing to serve. You see, Joseph could have been in prison, and he could have been angry, he could have been mad. 
He could have had contention. He could have just pouted in the corner. But he said, you know what? I know there's a reason that this has happened to me. I know that God has me here for a reason, just like we talked about last week, that our circumstances are going to put us right back where we're supposed to be. He's like, I know there's a reason here, so I'm going to serve while I'm here. And why was it that Pharaoh did not see Joseph as someone who was going to intrude on his throne? It's the same qualities. Qualities of humility, honesty, and willingness to serve for the betterment of the land and that people would survive. So we see this idea later in the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, verses 3 through 23. It says this, whatever you do, it doesn't say just sometimes or only when you're doing things at church or whenever you're in small group or whenever you're with believers. It says, no, whatever you do, anything that you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward as you are serving Christ, the Lord. You see, Joseph modeled this exact thing. He was almost like a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of what was to come. We see this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 13, verse 14 says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do. Mark 10, verse 43 says, But it shall be, not be among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Joseph was modeling this idea throughout his entire life. In fact, all these characters we've studied are modeling this idea of serving God no matter what. Whatever you do, whatever you do, it involves service. We've all known the difference if, if you're at a part of a company, even if you're an employee. We all, we've all seen people. And we know the difference between employees who are there for themselves, to make themselves look better for people to look at them, or who employees are there for the company. We know people who are there for the customers and who are just there for the boss. In our lives, if we come to truly serve, we realize that we're not serving for ourselves to point people closer to us. We're actually serving to point people closer to Jesus. We have to take on this idea of serving. You know, in fact, in the Christian life, we're here for the kingdom. We're here to point people closer to God and not ourselves each and every day of our lives. So the first lesson we have is to point people closer to Jesus through serving. The next lesson, and this is one of the hardest things for us to do when it comes to us being in the moment. It's easy hindsight. Hindsight's 20-20, but in the moment, this is really hard, and this is a lesson we have to take hold of is that we must strive to know and fulfill God's purpose. There's a lot of times in our life where we feel like we're in darkness and we're like, God, what in the world is going on? What is your purpose for this event happening? Why is this happening in my life? But we must strive to know and fulfill God's purpose. This is exactly what Joseph did. He knew there was a reason that he was going through all these different things. And he knew that his ultimate purpose on this earth was to get people to know who God was. He was striving to know and fulfill God's purpose. See, he was willing to fulfill or endure hardship so that he could fulfill the purpose of God. See, nobody signs up to be a slave. Nobody signs up to be a prisoner. No one like, wakes up in the morning like, you know what? I just want to go to jail today. It's going to be fun. Like, nobody, nobody does that. But something happened in Joseph's life that he didn't want to happen. However... Though it wasn't pleasant, he accepted it because he knew that ultimately God was going to get the glory and that he was able to save the people 
of Israel. And this is why when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, he said this in Genesis 45, verse 5, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. He knew that there was a reason. He knew that the ultimate reason and purpose for him being sold to slavery was that God ended up promoting him so that he could end up saving people's lives. He said, don't think about this as a bad thing. Think about this as a good thing. God was at work. God was providing a way. The provision of God has been seen. 17 years later, after Jacob died, his brothers were still worried. 17 years later, they're still worried. Like, you know what? One day he's just going to turn on us and he's going to kill us all. After what we did to him, I know, he's, I know he's acting really good and he's giving us things, he's making sure we're alive, but there's just something that they were just kept being worried about the fact that his brother may turn on him. And it says this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, it says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He saw the purpose of God's work in his life. Let me tell you a story about someone who knew the purpose and fulfilled the purpose of God in their life. Has anybody here ever heard of someone named Corrie ten Boom, The Hiding Place? It's a very popular book. It involves Nazi concentration camps. It's a story that some of us probably read back in school. But I want to read you part of her story, and I want you to think about God's providence, of how he is working even in the moments that we can't understand and we don't see why. Here's part of her story. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corrie ten Boom recounts the hardships of imprisonment in one of Nazi Germany's most brutal concentration camps, Ravensbrück. If you're a history buff or you've ever studied this, Ravensbrück was known as one of the hardest and worst concentration camps that someone could be sent to. She describes not only the obvious cruelties of life in the camp, like the torturous labor, the starvation diet, and physical brutality of the guards, but even the small annoyances when added to the other loomed as large as the Nazi flags that flew over their barracks. Things like the incessant itching and sores caused by the biting fleas and lice that infested their beds. Together with her sister Betsy, Corey was able to smuggle a small pocket Bible that they used in leading ladies in their barracks in daily devotions. One day as they read from 1 Thessalonians, they came upon this set of verses. It said, Rejoice always, Pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And here's the following conversation between the two sisters. Let's see if we can pick up on God's providence and how he works in our lives. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this situation, about these barracks. I stared at her. I looked around this dark, foul-eared room. I said, such as? Such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for the very crowding here. Since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Then she gets a little sarcastic. She says, thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas and for the fleas. 
This is too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. As time went by, word started spreading around camp of guards sneaking into barracks to molest the female prisoners and impromptu raids to search for contraband, make their life as hard as possible. Yet Betsy and Corey noticed that their barracks were largely spared from these ghastly intrusions. One day, Betsy overheard one of the supervisors, one of the guards, saying, why didn't you enter that barrack? Betsy could not hold the triumph from her voice because here's what the guard said. Because of the fleas. That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas. There's no way I'm going into that barrack. And it was in this moment that she realized why that was happening. Side by side in the sanctuary of God's fleas, Betsy and I minister the word of God uninterrupted to all in the room. We see this in the book or the story of Joseph as well. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, it says, As for you, you meant evil against me. You meant bad things to happen, things that seemingly are not good. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. What are the fleas in your life? What are the fleas in my life? What are the, what are the things in our life that seem really annoying, that are not comfortable, that seems like nothing that God would ever allow to happen, but ultimately God's provision is there? You see, God sent fleas to them so that the guards wouldn't check their barracks so they could continue to preach the gospel. The people would come to know them out of an inconvenience in their life. There's inconvenience in their life. There's things that we don't understand, but we have to put our trust and faith in God that he is still working. And that's exactly what Joseph realized. You know, Joseph remained faithful no matter what. He continued to trust in God, and it's clear to us today how God was at work because hindsight, we're reading the story after it's all happened. But Joseph continued to be faithful. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're going to have a different type of hardship. I'm guessing that neither slavery nor prison is in the cards for us in this room. At least I hope not. But most certainly there's going to be hardships to overcome. There's going to be injustice that happens. There's going to be people who are not treated as fairly as others. And there's going to be inconveniences in life. And though God is not causing those hardships in our lives, he is able to use it for the good of his kingdom. And this is where it comes into play that we see and fulfill the purpose of God in our lives. And the same attitude that Joseph had will empower us in those moments. You can say, God, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand what good can come from it, but I trust you. I trust in your ability to work out the details of my life, and I'm willing to endure whatever hardship comes so I can point people closer to you. We just have to be willing to do that. And here's the last lesson that we can take from the story of Joseph. And this one is hard as well. So we must learn to let go for the sake of reconciliation. It's hard. It hurts. There's things we hold on to for a long time in life. There's things that we've been walking around with our backs for years and years, and it keeps holding us back because we're not willing to let go of for the sake of reconciliation. See, you have to realize that Joseph was willing to let go of an offense and move forward in reconciliation. As the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, he had all the authority to make his brother's life awful, to make his brothers slaves, to throw them in prison, to allow them to reap what they sowed, per se. However, even though they were at his mercy, he shows them mercy. He shows them grace. He shows them love. 
How about this? When he, finally, when he finally told them who he was, he embraced them. He wept over them, and he offered them a place to live. He made sure they had food on their table. And later, again, they get worried. And he just simply said this in Genesis chapter 50. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So I do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph wasn't willing to spend the rest of his life nursing an open wound of unforgiveness. And so he let it go. He forgave his brothers. He provided for them and even spoke kindly to them. Ultimately, forgiveness is to set a prisoner free and to realize that the prisoner is us. The lack of forgiveness in our lives allows us to stay in a prison. He learned this lesson. Let's think about how God forgives us. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That's how God treats our sins. That's how forgiveness works for us. But then he says, hey, I want you to forgive others just as I have forgiven you. And that means we have to let it go. That means we have to pursue reconciliation in our lives. Because here's what happens when we don't. When we have those open wounds of bitterness and resentment, Lasting joy is not ours. Abiding peace is not ours. Reconciliation is not ours when we hold on to things. We have to let them go. We have to allow reconciliation to be a role in our life. I remember being, I was around seven or eight years old. There was an event that happened in my family's life that as a young boy, I, I felt like my, my dad and my family was wronged. And it affected our, our family dynamic. It affected our, our lives physically. It affected our lives emotionally, spiritually, financially. A lot of things happened because of this one event. And it took me seven years. It took me seven years to look the person in their eyes that did this and say, I forgive you. For seven years, I held resentment against this person. For seven years, I didn't like this person. For seven years, I wondered, why did that even happen? That wasn't even fair. But I was able to forgive them and experience reconciliation. I would encourage you to not go seven years and wait for reconciliation to happen in, in your life. I want to close with a, with a story. A couple months ago, probably six weeks ago, I wrote a story on my Facebook page about a couple of friends of mine. Two friends that I've gotten to know over the last three years or so. And in the fall of 2019, Pastor Bobby and myself were supposed to fly to a different country, the country of Ecuador, and perform this couple's wedding. About a month before we were supposed to leave, there was civil unrest in the government and, and things were overthrown. There were barricades put up, there were fires, there were riots. So it wasn't safe for us to go down to this country. So we had to call the trip off. One of the fiancés, she had to come back to the States just for her own safety. And then obviously, January of 2020 and the first half of last year, this global pandemic happens of COVID-19 and our whole world shuts down. And as I'm meeting with this couple via Zoom and we're just talking about things and they start to ask, like, I don't understand why this is happening, but I know it is God's purpose for us to be married. I know this is God's will for our lives. And they stayed strong. 
And about a month ago, Pastor Bobby and myself in this very spot right here on this floor were able to marry them as he was able to come to the States. But God's provision in their life was orchestrating things that they didn't even know about. But at the end of this post, I mentioned an illustration that I saw on this very stage about 10 years ago. And here was the illustration. I think it was applicable to their story and I think it's applicable for us today. There's so many times in our life where we feel like we're in the kitchen cooking a meal. There's three, four, five pots on the stove. Two of them are about to boil over. The microwave starts beeping. There's bread in the oven that's about to burn. It's utter chaos. But all of a sudden, if you've ever seen a show called Master Chef, amongst all the chaos, amongst everything going on, amongst all the sweat, amongst everything going on, the chef gets this plate out and he puts it down and he starts plating this meal from all the boiling pots, things out of the oven, things out of the microwave, and he puts everything on this plate and it's completely perfect. My life and your life is a lot like that kitchen where everything seems like chaos sometimes. The question is, what's the boiling pot in your life that you need to allow God to be in control of? Because here's the good part of that story is that we're not the one cooking the meal. God is the master chef. God is the one who is at work orchestrating all these things. And amongst all the chaos in our lives, amongst all the pots seemingly boiling over and the bread burning in the oven, God is plating a meal that you can't even see yet. This is the story of Joseph. This is the story of Jacob. This is the story of Abraham. This is the story of Noah. This is the story of creation, is that we have a God who loves us and is working in our lives even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it. So what's your boiling pot? What's the thing in your life? What's the flea? What's the thing that just keeps annoying you or keeps popping up that, hey, I just need to let God be in control of it. I just need to focus on the fact that God is ultimately in control and I have to let go of it. Maybe it is that unforgiveness. Maybe it is reconciliation. Maybe it is your marriage. Maybe it's your kids. There's things in our lives that seem out of our control, but we just have to put the trust in the God who's the same God in the beginning. He's the same God today. He's going to be the same God forever who is in control of our lives. He is a God of providence. He is a God orchestrating things each and every day in our lives. We just simply have to put our trust and put our faith in him. Let's pray. God, as we finish this series and we've looked at some of the greatest stories in the Bible, God, we thank you for being the same God of Jacob, the same God of Noah, the same God of Moses, the same God of the Old Testament as the God of today. And that God, just as you orchestrated things in their lives that they couldn't see, God, you were orchestrating things in our lives as well. God, it's our prayer that we can put our trust, we can put our faith, we can put our hope in that. That God, we're not the ones who are plating this dinner. We're not the ones who are having to put these things together, but God, ultimately you are. And God, if there's someone in this room or someone watching online who hasn't put their faith in you yet, God, I pray that today they would put their faith in you. They would allow you to be in control. God, I pray that this week you would be a God of providence. You would be a God of provision. That we would have a conversation with someone and tell them about how God has worked in our lives. Even inviting someone to Easter next weekend as we celebrate your son Jesus and the hope we have in him. God, I pray that you would give us those opportunities. And that God, ultimately we would put our faith and our trust in you. Even when we don't see you working, even when we don't feel you working, that God, we would know that you were making a way for us. It's your name we pray.
Amen. Thanks again for listening today. If you need prayer or help taking your next step, email our team at nextsteps at journeycommunity.net.